Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out into the internet. Uh, best way to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound. All of that information is down in the description below. If you're interested in event-driven type investing, uh, spinoffs, uh, cluster buys, insider buys, all sorts of things like that, and you want a place to be able to track it all on one website, uh, go to insidearbitrage.com. And uh, well, what actually you should do is click the link in the description, which will take you to insidearbitrage.com. And if you decide to sign up, they'll let them know that you heard about them from us, which helps support everything that we do here on the podcast. So in today's podcast, we're going to walk through two different net nets that are actionable at the moment, spend some time on them, uh, pros and cons of each, what Jeff likes and what Jeff doesn't like. And really just walk through to demonstrate uh, exactly what Jeff looks for when he comes across a net net. Uh, before we jump into that, Jeff, do you want to give a quick uh, overview of what a net net is? And then we can look at Juet Cameron and Jerish Holdings. Um, mm -hmm. And we can look at those on QuickFS. But first of all, I mean, was it net net the first, uh, first company you ever like actually invested in after reading security analysis? Um, that might be true. Uh, You're known as the net net guy, you know? Yeah. I, I was investing before I read security analysis, but it might be true that the first thing that I read after reading security analysis, or the first thing I bought after reading security analysis was a net net. Um, so, uh, net, uh, net net is a net current asset value stock, which means, um, that's sometimes called a net net and sometimes called NCAV. Um, you'll see both. It just means that the current assets of the company minus the total liabilities are greater than the market cap. So in theory, the company is selling for less than its liquidation value is the idea behind it. Uh, current assets, the main components of that are cash, receivables, and inventory. Um, and then inventory, in that case, on companies' balance sheets is stated at the lower of cost or market, which is almost always um, cost. And... Uh, that minus all liabilities, not just the current liabilities, gives you a number. Um, for many companies, current uh, assets don't exceed um, total liabilities anyway. But for those that do, um, and there are many where it does, uh, they tend to have a market cap, uh, so the total value of all their, their shares, um, that is a lot higher than that. So it's nowhere near liquidation value. These companies are the rare examples where um, the cash receivables and inventory plus some other stuff minus all of their liabilities is actually greater than what the company is selling for in the market. So you can buy the company in the market for less than sort of it would um, uh, an estimate of what it would be to liquidate the company. Do you think purchasing companies under book value today is what purchasing net nets used to be when you first started out just from the perspective of there's more opportunities in that more companies do sell for less than book value than um the amount of companies that are net nets um 
I think the stock prices are on average about twice as expensive as they were prior to 1995 or so. So you have a lot fewer net nets. Um, the, you know, increasing the price of stocks in general by two times or something reduces the number of net nets by more than that because they're very, very marginal. They're the absolute cheapest stocks. Just the same way that we have a lot more stocks that trade over 10 times sales than normal, you know, which is a very high value that, that you rarely see. Um, we have very, very few stocks that trade at very low levels. It's less noticeable in the middle of the bell curve, right? If we just total up how many number of stocks there are. Um, it is true that there are more stocks below book value than there are um, below net current assets. Two reasons for that. One, a lot of people do book value without doing tangible. When I refer to book value, I'm always going to be referring to tangible book value, but a lot of people aren't. So uh, the Japanese trading companies, for instance, when they say book value, they mean including everything, which makes sense from the perspective of management if they're trying to say that we are getting a good return on our historical investment. Um, so you mentioned since Focus Compounding started, we haven't invested in net-net. Um, well, actually, I'm not sure. I think there's one case where we did. But let's put that aside. Um, if we didn't... Um, so I'm including managed accounts and, and fund together. Uh, but so we have invested in many stocks that are below book value or at book value. Um, so obviously a company could have a liquidation value in an orderly liquidation that is uh, where it's not a net net, but it could be liquidated. Um, so some of the shares we bought in Virtue Motors were probably purchased at prices that were very reasonable versus liquidation value. Um, other times the shares probably weren't. Um, so certainly the entire company could probably be sold for more than what we paid. But uh, it's also possible that because the inventory it was all cars and the, the PP&E was all um, land that they owned, freehold land in the UK, with um, the dealerships, um, uh, buildings on top of it, uh, that also could probably be sold and liquidated uh, in some cases liquidated for things that weren't necessarily dealerships again sometimes the best use of land might not be as a dealership and so yeah it, it could have liquidation about that um we've mentioned alico kuanal land association maui land and pineapple the list goes on um some of those companies have never been either at a price to book below one um since we've been talking about them nor have they ever been close to uh, net current asset bargain. However, they probably could, in some cases, sell off all of their land over time and liquidate and would get more money than they put in, uh, than, than the market was valuing them at. So it depends on the company and depends on what the liquidation scenario would be. So a net net is one way of looking at it is the liquidation idea. I don't know that liquidation idea is totally the most important concept to it. It's important, but there are reasons why I don't think it's most important. And um, the fact that the assets are current has some implications um, for other reasons. Normally, you don't make money because the company liquidates. You make money because returns on capital improve and the multiple on the stock improves. Is this like a make 100% on your capital and then recycle your capital into other ideas? type of strategy or from your experience is this more of a two three four five bag uh type of potential strategy um i, I think either one works uh buffett would buy you know in the early partnership days and if the stock went up then he would eventually sell 
Um, Graham's practice was to buy at two-thirds of net current asset values. Nothing we're going to show you today or talk about has, is that low. Um, and then he would sell it when it reached uh, uh, net current assets. Um, whereas Buffett would buy and then eventually might buy controlling stakes or something if he kept nibbling and the stock didn't go up and he could buy more and more and then he could take action on it. That's, in fact, how he ended up with Berkshire. But he did it with other companies, too. Um, Sanborn Map, Dempster Mill, those were net nets. Uh, I've done some research on net nets versus other things in the U.S. Um, uh, you know, I, I haven't looked into other countries on this. However, it is likely that long-term median returns in net nets, so, so that the... If we bought a basket of 10 net nets, what does, you know, the middle one in there go at um, over time that are pretty similar to the indexes, their returns, which also would mean that they're higher than other stocks, which is probably true. So on average, if you buy a net net and hold it for a long time, um, it's possible that it will it's better than throwing a dart and buying and holding a random stock. I know that's not what people believe. People believe that they do badly over long terms but do well over short terms. Um, that's possible, and I think quants and stuff would say buy when there's momentum. Uh, there is a caveat, which is that I fix some things in data, which is bad. So one issue is that people are sometimes identifying net nets that are not, in my view, would pass a net net checklist. You know, uh, Ben Graham wouldn't buy them, but Warren Buffett wouldn't buy them, Tweety Brown wouldn't buy them, whatever. Uh, but because we use computers and stuff, we sometimes are including things that should not be in there. Um, some of them are frauds. That's one issue and have other issues like that. But some of them are just misclassifications of things. So for instance, um, there'll be some screens that might include a home builder. A home builder doesn't report its balance sheet the same way as other companies. Its balance sheet doesn't have the same, um, length of time in terms of how long it would be until th things become liquid so it wouldn't make sense to include the inventory of a home builder the same way you would include the inventory of certain other companies um so there's all sorts of things about what might be a problem that way they also include sometimes financial stocks and things like that um you'd have to evaluate on your own to decide but it in general i found that the median return was quite similar um, between net nets and non net nets over long periods of time. If you bought and held for 10 years, for instance, and that it was um, superior in terms of the average return because the, some stocks get bought out and things like that. Um, weighing on this though, is that some stocks can go to zero. That is true. Um, in, in things where I did research on it, you know, any of the tweaks that I added eliminated any, any cases where companies went to zero um, these are back tests, but you know, I wasn't using hindsight in terms of I wasn't selecting. I was just telling the computer what to do. Um, but there are real people who've bought stocks that go to zero that are net nets. I've seen, I mean, I've talked to people, I've seen them write it up in real time. I've seen okay, fund managers do it. So um, that does happen. The biggest reason is probably fraud, usually fraud. Um, and there are ways to tell a computer or something to make sure that you don't buy fraudulent businesses and stuff. The other one is like certain um, things that happen that, that are risky from a credit perspective and stuff. A lot of it is following rules that are sort of um, not common sense approaches, but a computer might do or a person might do if they're doing a screen or a straight cutoff and following a complete formula. Um, 
the quant argument stuff is that usually when you follow that kind of formula, your returns are the same or slightly better. So for instance, I'm not aware of any thing proving that buying an net that's currently making money is better than not making money. However, there's evidence and returns and stuff that it's because of some of the not making money ones doing really well. And I don't think there's much benefit to buying ones that aren't making money. Um, I include basic things. The main one is, you know, the history of having positive returns in many instances. So whether that, you know, the, if the company's been public 15 years, the number of years in which it's had positive earnings is meaningful. So like uh, money losing biotech would have zero, whereas some other companies might have 14 out of 15 years, even if they've lost money this most recent year, you know? Um, so I, I don't think that they tend to do worse than other stocks, but they're perceived to do worse than other stocks over the long term. And certainly if you want very high returns, you have to churn them. But most all value strategies would require you to churn stocks if you want higher returns to some extent. Mm -hmm. One thing that is interesting, which I'll just pull us up to your point about some companies just get bought out over time and long-term returns and whatnot. So you wrote this up for Guru Focus on April 11th, 2012, five Japanese net nets and how to analyze them. And you went through it a little bit and then you listed five net nets, right? Um, what I did was I pulled up, since you wrote the article, and again, this isn't saying that you own any of these and perhaps you did, mm -hmm. um, but... I went back to when you wrote up the article and I just sort of did a, a total return and you could see most of these were market, uh, market beating. I put in the, in the S and P 500. Um, uh, actually I just, I just went back. Uh, I just zoomed out a little bit. I think we're at April 12th. Let's see right here. Yeah. So here, here are the returns and one of the companies actually got bought out Excel. So that's not, here on uh the chart but it looks like you wrote it up around uh i'm just eyeballing here five six seven hundred dollars a share and it was acquired for one thousand six hundred dollars per share um but it's like yeah 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 mm -hmm. yeah yeah what's what's interesting though is like these companies from like a risk management perspective right rule number one never lose money rule number two don't forget rule number one all of these stocks that you picked made money. A couple of them destroyed the S&P 500, and then a couple of them kept up or did a little bit worse, but none of them, none of them actually lost money. And what? how many years are we talking about here? So we're going back to April 12, 2012. So just, I mean, under uh, above 10 years ago. Right. So, you know, studies of these things, you sent me a spinoff study. It said short-term and long-term, and long-term was a year and a half. So yeah. this yeah. is a dumb way of picking stocks. I don't know anything about Japanese stocks, but pick them 11 years ago and hold on to them. Uh, some of them outperform the overall market, even though there's the everything about the companies from people's perspective is that they're not doing what they need to to beat the market. People are expecting a return in one to two years, which would be great if they get it. You know, Graham would say... Uh, in his intelligent investor stuff, it doesn't seem like he practiced this, but he he did say in the intel in um in talking to individual investors that you know you buy it at two thirds of net current assets. If nothing happens in three years or something, you move on. And a lot of net you just sell it regardless if it doesn't reach net current asset value. And a lot of net net investors suggest that kind of thing. Um, I usually suggest that you just check it once a year. 
And if it's still below net current assets and you still like it, then you can, you know, um, repeat the same thing. Um, if not, then don't, but I wouldn't consider selling it within a year. Um, and then once, and then I'd wait another year each time you do it. I, I think there's a benefit to trying not to sell anytime the stock goes up, but some people have had success with that. Certainly in Japan, there's lots of momentum stuff that happens. Stocks sometimes surge for a while and net net, and then people sell. And if you can find other things again to recycle it into, it works. The difficulty is finding enough of them. Yeah, that spinoff study, we're actually going to go over it on a podcast. The reason I sent it to you, Jeff, was because we always talk about, gosh, like spinoffs, they, they suck nowadays. And uh, especially because, mm -hmm. you know, we look at spinoffs for yeah. the fund and managed accounts. So I wasn't surprised when I looked at that study and I saw that the results have been even not that interesting, even if it's been over a, hand, a couple of years. I knew that wasn't a long term thing, but I was like, yeah, yeah, this pretty much tells me exactly how Jeff and I feel about the spinoff market, even though they yeah, only took a handful of stocks or whatever. Right. And a year and a half is not long, but for no. people investing in spinoffs, that's what they expect the return to come in. They mm -hmm. think they're getting a better price and it's going to start to turn around and things are going to get better within a year and a half. They probably think that in net nets. Um, I mean, even we do longer term investing stuff and I would say our time frame is similar to private equity or something like um, three years might be a little on the short end for us for holding something, but it would certainly happen. And seven years would be on the longer end. So, you know, like five years or something. So these net nets that go out 10, 11 years. It, the other thing to consider is how often were they in a leading position versus the S&P? How many of them were, et cetera, you know? So, like, if you buy a basket of a bunch of them, if much of the time many of them were above the S&P, right? So, like, if you buy a basket and half of them, are half of the time, you know, more than half the time, more than half of them are above the S&P. It's not really a strategy I would worry a lot about. The S&P had a really good 10 years or whatever, you know. Um, so, I mean, this is obviously complicated because we're comparing something that's a benchmark versus Japanese things and all that here. But the idea in general is that the prices of many of these things went up a lot, even over a very long period of time, or they didn't come down a lot or fall apart if it didn't work out in a year. Um, and no one is trying to buy a net net to hold it for 10 years. I've never talked to anyone who says I want to buy it and then forget about it for 10 years. They, it's hard to get convince them to only look at it once a year. So um, the, the idea, I think, is to encourage people that the downside, if you select them right, of holding too long is not as big as you think, right? Because there are also 10-year periods where the S&P doesn't really do that well, and, and then your returns on the net nets are, are better, Um so, but in terms of the volatility of the returns and all that kind of stuff, we do have some information on that. Um, they do, the the problem for value investors, I think, is that they, they do badly at the end of a bull market, right? They, on a relative basis, they might have very low negative returns where the market is going up 10, 20% a year, and they're having slightly negative to, you know, zero to slightly negative, which would be very painful. Um, and they do really well at a time when value investors maybe don't need it as much. So like um, uh, if we took the date of the bottoming in the um, 2009, I know that I looked and did a basket of net nets chosen by a computer thing for one year. So not one calendar year, but literally one year from the bottom to see how violent the move is up in something like that. 
And in net nets, it was over 10 net nets, so somewhat diversified. It was well over 150% up from the bottom. So, you know, when you can't, when it's, it's like junk bonds or something. Like when you turn from we're in a recession to we're back in a bull market kind of thing happening in a bad financial crisis like that, which is the best test of that so far, um, it, that's when they do well. And then they do badly at the end of a bull market or something. So they, they do really well at the beginning of a bull market, really badly at the end of it kind of thing, which is not necessarily what value investors want. Um, they actually have a really good track record year to year of beating the market too. So if it's not something that I care about, but if you have an obsession with like uh, you don't want to underperform as much as value strategies normally do, or a third of the time or something you're underperforming, it is a strategy that tends to outperform year after year, although sometimes by small amounts. So it doesn't matter that much, you know, but um, it, it does post a lot of positive years and a lot of years in which it slightly beats the market. Yeah, it is interesting. If you look at it from like a cigar butt type investment, you're pretty much in the money if you go back to 2013, 2014. So owning it for only a couple of years, uh, most of the time, other than this yellow chart um, or the the yellow line, which, which, you know, so I mean, you're always making money. And then even if you want to look at this little chart from Excel, the company that got acquired, you wrote up the mm-hmm. article in 2012. Um, uh, so we're talking, we're talking, yeah, 671 yen. If you held it for a couple of years, I mean, it more than doubled. So you're kind of at that 150% right. area if you're thinking about this as like a cigar butt type strategy. But the biggest takeaway from me is most of these, even over a 10-year time frame, um, did incredibly well because you just, you don't hear a lot of people say, I'm going to buy net net and look to hold it for 10 or 12, 13, 14, 15 years. Uh, but as a strategy right. itself, they do pretty good over time. It so that's always the way time. I look at as the downside what happens we talk about this with mergers what happens if the merger falls apart with the net now what happens if it doesn't re-rate if it, if i have to hold it indefinitely if the stock price goes up you can sell it if it gets too expensive if it has a blip something good if it doesn't then you're looking at those risks to see how often is it that i have to hold something for 10 years and how badly could it go so 10 years would kind of be the extreme thing in that case. But those are the examples of like, what if I got stuck in a net net for a long time? Because the goal isn't to buy it and to own it for a long time. The goal is to buy it and to sell it in a short time. But the downside is you have to keep holding it. Um, not that you would sell it as a net net. And usually I would not suggest that to anyone that you bought a stock, you like the stock in any way, and you sell it as a net net. It's a bad idea to ever sell a stock near net current asset value unless it's going to go out of business or it's a fraud or something. Mm-hmm. So let's look at uh, Juet Cameron and Jerish and see what your takeaways are. So current market cap, 16 million, enterprise value, 13 million um, from a gross margin perspective. I mean, pretty stable margins. Let's go to the balance sheet and we could go to quarterly and we can walk through it. So total current assets are listed as 32 million total liabilities are 13 million and as we said the market cap is 16 million so where do you first go when you start to look at a company that is a net net and you look at the balance sheet and yeah you see it's a net net so where do you go from here so you look the first thing when someone suggests it's a net net you believe it might be net net or 
Um, you know, nowadays you're often going to find it because someone says it's a net net or thinks it might be a net net or something. And a lot of the time, maybe more than half the time, you do a quick check of the balance sheet and say, actually, no, it's not. Um, but what you normally would do is go just to current assets using the, the disclosures that they have in the SEC. These are both SEC filing companies. Take current assets. In this case, what's the most recent current assets that we have there? $32 million. And then what's our most recent total liabilities? Thirteen million, so that's nineteen million. Nineteen million, and we said the market cap's what sixteen or something on this stock. Do you remember? Yep, sixteen. So net net, right? Market cap is less than current assets. Um, now, there's some people who could argue and say, well, what if the other current assets makes up all the difference? What if there's other liabilities on there that it? You could, but then also we know some things about this company that offsets that, right? So they own. They said they're going to close down their seed business. Seed business accounts for, I forget, maybe a quarter million in inventory, 11.7 acres, 105,000 square foot warehouse, things like that. That's not included in our valuation. And they said they're going to sell it or they're going to liquidate it or they're going to just get out of it. Whatever they're going to do, those assets won't be on the books permanently and we didn't count them at all. Um, so normally you'd look at the proxy, um, which you have for this company, and you'd look at 10K, 10Q. So, ten, you know, for any business, I'm going to read the 10K, the 10Q, and the proxy statement. Um, Jewett Cameron is unusual for NetNet in many ways. Both these companies have some issues that could get them banned from, like, when it has a, a dumb approach of buying NetNet. It's like I could put it into a screen thing to make sure not to buy these. Uh, they're both U.S. list. They're both U.S. listed companies that aren't actually American. So it's a little complicated. Jewett Cameron's a, really an American company, but it's incorporated in Canada and operates under Canadian sorts of things. It's a foreign filer. You can see that by the ticker symbol. Um, and it, uh, but it files normal SEC statements in the U.S., but it also operates and owns property and stuff in the U.S. and really is a U.S. company, but it's never switched locations. Um, Jerish is more complicated, which is tipped off by the fact that it says Jerish Holdings U.S., which is usually means it's not us when you see something like that um so the situation there the name of the company and stuff would suggest jordan um and um the company in the middle east yeah it's a yeah i don't know that they named it after it but i assume that they did it's a a place uh an ancient place um, so I'm sure it's a modern day place with the same name, but I mean, it was well-known ancient. So, um, it's in the middle East where it actually has its operations. It's a contract manufacturer of, um, clothing for probably companies like, uh, um, I would assume uh, like, so I think the actual customer would be like North face or something, but it probably, um, VF and New Balance and stuff that account for almost everything. A lot of contract manufacturers are going to be net nets. You know, a lot, of, or I should say, when you see net nets, a lot of them are going to be contract manufacturers. So instead of being like a te uh, commodity textile business or something, this is a company that um, puts together uh, uh, clothing on behalf of customers. Um, but so it has a small number of customers that it works with. Yeah. Okay. So the North Face, VF, New Balance. Okay. Yeah, a bunch of these are brands of the same um, company. Like Timberland was acquired by them and stuff. So, yeah, um, a few are not, though. And uh, so they have a few large customers, and um, that's common. You find things across the border in Mexico uh, doing contract manufacturing for U.S. companies. 
electronics and stuff like that. Assembly work. Usually it's outsource assembly work, so stuff people are doing by hand to do that. These are, um, there's a few things about this company that's a little um, trickier because it actually is a Hong Kong company doing business in Jordan but listed in the U.S. It's uh, has a large shareholder um, who has a, has a variety of positions with the company. That's unusual to have that many positions. So in addition to being the CEO and chairman, which is kind of normal, he also holds all of the um, uh, necessary titles you need legally. So I think he's the president, the treasurer, and the secretary. There's, it's not as common as you'd think to combine all those titles in the same person. Uh, I don't know that it's a big deal. I think that that probably means that there's different companies within this one and the one that you're seeing is like the parent company but that they probably have a subsidiary that's created just to own things in hong kong a subsidiary to import export in each different place and it's maybe to expedite things in terms of being able to sign everything and do things um but there's just you know unusual in that kind of way right um jerish has gotten written up more uh i think over time um, so Jewett Cameron was originally like a lumber related business and stuff and basically makes like, um, pet gates, pet fence stuff. Um, some related things like, uh, dog waste bags and, and things, um, that are in that, but they bought back a lot of the stock over time and, uh, they, one of their founders, I think left it to, or not exactly a founder, but a person who was involved in redoing the business over decades, um, left it to a uh, nonprofit or something in in Oregon is my memory. Um, so there's two holders that own like half the stock. Um, you, it's somewhat liquid because it's listed on Nasdaq. Realistically, I think an individual could over a long period of time acquiring it maybe invest half a million dollars, but I don't know that you can invest much more than that. You probably don't want to go over five percent of the company. In this case, it's liquid enough that you probably could get to five percent. But that explains why funds like us and stuff might not own it. Um, is that you know there's a pretty hard cap that you can't really invest more than half a million dollars and $500,000 something is going to move the needle for most investors. Um, so Jerish, though, is the kind of thing that gets written up based on EBITDA. Because if you look at their history, it's a good example of the two different businesses of Jewett Cameron's kind of what people consider a bad business. Jerish is what some people might consider good business at one time or thought it was a good business and then thought it was a bad business and attributed to management or something. But when we're looking at a net net, a true commodity business that has problems, it usually looks more like Jerish than Jewett Cameron. Jewett Cameron has very, very long-term steady returns. It looks almost like a bank or something. Um, that's not usually what you get. Um, what you get is more like what you see with Jerish where you have very high returns at one period where there's high volume and stuff and then very low returns later on. Um, so return on capital at one time was high and stuff, just like it would be in a boom in a commodity business and then later on low. Um, so which company do you like more? I mean, like from a oh, red like flag, Cameron just, a lot. I was going to say from red flag checklist, when you talk about yeah. uh, Jerish, I mean, or it sounds to me like there's just certain things that would probably keep you away from that company. Um, no, it's not that bad. No, the stuff with Jerish isn't that bad. No, I mean there there are some issues. Uh, they they bought something in Hong Kong that uh, just to own property. I think in Hong Kong. Um, I, I think there are issues that are a bigger thing about what their business does and what it really is. 
one thing to keep in mind is um, when investing in stocks, the kind of ultimate test, right, is like, would I buy the whole company or something? Or would I buy this if it was a private business or whatever? To be honest, I don't think that you would ever buy Jerish if you saw what it is. So this is a company that, you know, makes clothes and shoes, or I guess. Uh, I mean, all I know about is clothes, but I don't know what they're doing for New Balance. But I, I assume it was clothes for New Balance, but it could be shoes. Um, in a country uh, that is, they're in dormitories. The employees are all in dormitories there, and they're paid. You know, um, you know, uh, I, well. I mean, compared to American wages and stuff, they're making about as much in a month or something as people probably make in a day. Um, maybe not quite that bad, but close. Um, and they, some of them are refugees, um, you know, from Syria and stuff. Uh, and, and then the others are probably all non-residents, uh, not um, citizens of the country who have come there to work. So the closest comparison in the United States is like migrant workers, you know, um, people who come to someplace to work there. It's more common in other countries around the world than the United States, but people who come someplace to work there but don't integrate into the society so much and stuff, and then they leave. Um, and, you know, so... There are other industries where this happens all the time. There, there's some in little, little tiny bit in Japan because there's some things that Japanese workers don't do and they foreign workers don't usually stay in, like permanently in Japan. Um, oil businesses and, you know, Saudi Arabia and whatever stuff, like Saudis are involved in some stuff, but they probably import labor for other things. So um, it's that kind of thing. And uh, so like a company town type thing when we're talking about dormitories, like your Foxcons or your whatever things that you see, things across the border in Mexico, in China, here. Um, so I don't know how much interest people would be in buying that. The other thing is that um, they're doing work for really just a few customers, right, who are probably sourcing it from all around the world. Um, and they source it uh, when it's cheapest from here. And then when it's not, they source from somewhere else. Um I don't know how stable it is versus others because we don't have a lot of peers to check. But if you look at the financial results, it seems to me like when someone like their big customers VF. And so if, if they have a real pressing need to increase um, production, then I think that that puts a lot of pressure on someplace like this and they make a lot of money. And then when they want to cut back, I think the reverse is true. So, um, when I said it's written up and stuff, it would be written up valuing on like EBITDA and stuff. I would not do that. I would just look at it as a net net. Um, as part of a basket of net nets, it might be fine. Like I said, technically, I would not let a screen pick it. I, I would make sure that it knows that it's foreign and listed in the U.S. Um, this one also, shorter history. It went public. went public at a much higher price. Um, it should stock before. It's done a few things that as a net net is less attractive. But it doesn't trip a lot of... Um, fraud flags and stuff to be honest um and the they do earnings calls i've read the earnings calls transcripts and it's a real business that they're quite knowledgeable about and stuff uh, you could tell the difference between that and a fake business usually 
um, or a business that they really don't have any involvement in. And, and the people that you're hearing from are like officially the CEO and stuff, but they don't know anything about it. They seem to have a very good grasp of all the details of the business and everything. Very high compared to what you get usually in anything that has problems with that. So if you were going to buy as a basket, would Jerish be more of a situation where you'd look to sell it a lot sooner and Juet Camry would fall more in the lines of, oh, it's been a steady grower. It looks a lot like a bank. You could see yourself potentially holding it for longer. Like if you were to think about the position on when you would sell, Jerish falls more in the line if you were to buy it of probably like a quick flip or like a cigar puff. Um, uh, whereas Juet Camry could be one that you could continue to hold for some time. No, I would buy them both and just hold for a year and see what happens. Um, both have somewhat interesting things. If things turn around for Jerry Shadal, people might get really excited. If you look at where the stock's been before and at the multiples on it, if people rate it on like EBITDA and stuff, um, they could really get excited because w- what was its best earnings year just in terms of like operating income for Jerish? Sure. So looks like $12 million in 2018. And what's the st- market cap now? $41 million. Okay. So, you know, I could see someone writing it up and saying it's worth, you know, a lot more than four times, right? What if they say it's worth six, seven, eight times EBITDA or whatever, you know? Um, then you could have a stock that's doubling. Um, its revenue has also grown even past that, right? So, like, it had its best earnings period in a period that wasn't its highest revenue period. It's had a big decline in terms of profitability metrics over time. It exhibits a lot of stuff that I would avoid in a business, but other people like. So it has fairly rapid growth even when margins are falling and increased asset growth during that time and everything. Things that suggest commodity business, which is fine. That means that when the commodity is in tight supply, when there isn't enough manufacturing capacity for apparel and stuff around the world, that it'll do well and people might get excited about it. I think overall it's more likely that people will write it up, will talk about it, will whatever this company. It also has earnings calls. It, uh, you know... It, it's just more likely that it would at some point get rated highly that way. Um, on the other hand, with Drew Cameron, could get sold at some point. Also, it is liquidating some stuff, which is potentially a big catalyst. Uh, I, I don't think they'll get a lot of value for it, but in terms of the replacement cost, it's extremely high versus the the value of the company, the market cap, right? You can just think, okay, how much could that land be? How much could a building be worth? How much could the inventory liquidating it be worth? Uh, it's very high on a... On a um, replacement cost if someone was actually looking to replace it now they're trying to get out of the business and they've been in it for decades probably no one's trying to replace it and no one wants that stuff in that location for repurposing it for any other business we don't know that it's possible that they could and you'd be you know surprised that that takes more capital out of it than you think um the big thing in both of them is obviously the hope that other people exit the business or something which increases your returns on capital over time um, so both of them you'll notice have, uh, the comparative businesses we talk about normally, they tend to have poor free cash flow generation. Um, that's not always the case because sometimes they they shrink instead of grow or something. But if you see ones that grow and that people like that way, they tend to have very bad cash flow numbers, which makes sense because one, that'd be more likely to create a net net because companies that build up receivables, inventory, whatever, 
will keep it. Whereas if they had cash, they might get rid of it, right? The receivables in the inventory are part of the business. The cash isn't. A net net could happen just from a buildup of cash, but it's less likely because companies pay dividends to buy back stock. Joe Cameron over time has bought back stock. But they might not take on debt to buy back stock. And they probably wouldn't take on debt just against things like receivables and inventory. So usually how you create a net net is this poor cash flow generation versus earnings. Um, so on that kind of basis, it's not that impressive. If you look at the overview um, for Jewett Cameron, for instance, um, if we see there, it has, let's see, um, what is our sales level most recently? 63 million. Okay. So on that basis, it's not actually very cheap on free cash flow calculation. So it's not unreasonable, but if you look, it has a market cap, which is about a third of its revenue. Um, so let's say EV to sales of 0 0.3 or something like that. When converted into the fact that your free cash flow is less than on a median basis is less than 3%, you know, um, that's, you could be paying over 10 times free cash flow. However, it's important to note that free cash flow is affected by what your balance sheet looks like now. So in general, when you see what has happened here where it's cheap and you see return on invested capital has declined and everything, it tends to be the case that that is underestimating what will be in the future and buying the stock today, you only care about the future. So it will probably release more cash than normal in the future. The free cash flow will look better and your return on capital will look better. The reason why the return on capital will be pressed down now and the free cash flow would look worse, both of these, would be affected by any build in inventory and receivables. Um, and so often you have a combination with stocks like this where you have a low stock price at the same time that you have a um, high build in current assets. That combination will create the net net, but then that would mean that you might release things from your balance sheet faster. Uh, when we're talking about things like free cash flow and everything, remember we're not talking about EBITDA. EBITDA tries to get away from looking at what really is the balance sheet and what actually are the cash flows and just focus on some measure of earnings, which isn't necessarily realistic from that perspective. Um, so in these cases, often you'll be able to release more free cash flow than normal in a shorter period of time when there's a recovery. Um, or demand recovers a lot and the amount of capital in the business goes up over time but reported earnings go up, and so people love that, and then they, they give you a good price to sell the stock at, mm. right? Um, but it, it it is usually the case that free cash flow at the time that you find a net-net might be somewhat understated versus what's going to be in the future. That's in part what helps create the net-net, and you can look at that through looking at the balance sheet and seeing if those sorts of um, things are higher than normal. You know... Um, Jewett Cameron's very long-term returns on capital and stuff are fine. So on a cash basis, they're not amazing. They're, they're actually better than the average company uh, on a um, reported basis. But on a cash basis, they're probably pretty similar. Uh, whereas Jerish was a magic formula type stock at first, I think, and then plunged to barely making any money, um, which is more common of a commodity type business like a Berkshire Hathaway textile business you know that's more what you see with those kinds of businesses usually um, so I mean what do you know what the returns on capital were for Jerish in its first few years we have what are our first reported numbers back in 2016 or something yeah what are they? 2016 so return invested capital 72 percent 54 percent 36 percent 11 percent 12 percent 7 percent 12 percent 3 percent so it's just consistently declined 
along yeah. with their profitability. But, right. And I would say both of the 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 profitability from long ago is is misleading, right? And that's why I don't like the magic formula type approach something because you might buy something like this. Um, if you're the first ones to do that, then you might have really high returns. But if other people around the world's global trade business, you know, decide we can open up in different countries and duplicate the same things for your costs, then you can run into the problem that they'll they'll try to compete away what you're doing, right? Um, on the other hand. If returns are really this bad, unless they have a system, you know, with with um, running things out of Jordan, that's bad compared to running things out of Vietnam and Honduras and whatever places that they might be, they might source these things from. Um, it, if they aren't at some sort of structural permanent disadvantage that way, returns on capital go back up. I mean, no. This is not an industry where someone's going to allow there to be fifty percent returns on capital. But neither should people stay in it when returns on capital are almost nothing. They should start exiting it. Um, so you should have wild fluctuations on returns on capital, which means you should try to buy it at a, a cheap asset basis and not try to buy it on like an earnings basis or predict ahead things. So that's usually how a write up of this is done. Like I said. I hate that because I don't know how you could try to look ahead five years something with this company. With with Drew Cameron, it's a different story. But with this company, what are you gonna do? I you know, the problem with a model is five year revenue ahead. If they grow revenue a lot in the next five years, profits could be down. However, I can also see them doubling profits on declining revenue. Like I can see both things very easily. Uh, if you look back and you were trying to make this prediction before COVID or something, and you said prof, uh, revenue would go from 2019 levels to 2023 levels, I don't think you would predict what happened with income. No one ever does that. I never see models that say, uh, even though this happens all the time, happens in insurance and stuff all the time, uh, revenue will double and profit will decline by 30% or something. But it happens all the time. Or the reverse, which is revenue will be flat, but profits will be up every year. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you're joining us, be sure to check out all of our content out on the internet. Uh, best way to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound. All the information is also down in the description below. Be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us here today. Uh, so you'll be notified in the future whenever we upload a podcast. I thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.